Please pray with me. May the, mer- wor- <coughs> excuse me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable <coughs> in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <coughs> so, did you hear that the state legislature of Alabama is going to turn the value of pi to 3.0 because it's a more biblical number? April Fools. Did you hear that the Pope called Sister Jean this week and said, if you can win this tournament, I will make you a saint? (laughs) April Fools. He actually called Coach Wright at Villanova. They are terrifying. Did you hear that a famous food franchise has purchased the Liberty Bell from the U.S. government and is going to call it the Taco Liberty Bell? (laughs) April Fools. Did you hear that Disney purchased MIT for $6.9 billion dollars and is going to create the Scrooge McDuck School of Management. (laughs) April Fools. Those are actually all uh, real pranks that have been played on the 1st of April in recent years. For a while at the MIT website, there was a doctored photograph of the famous MIT dome with Mickey Mouse ears on it. I think my favorite prankster, though, is the 19th century French antiquities dealer who sold 22,000 forgeries to a single client, including a letter he said Aristotle had written Alexander the Great in French. <laughs> so April Fool's Day became a big thing in the 16th century, of course, when, they sw- when France switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, and they moved New Year's Day from the traditional April 1 to the novel January 1, and those who were too unlettered to hear the news or too stubborn to make the switch were known as April Fools. But actually, prank playing uh, a few days after the spring equinox goes even further back than the 16th century. Chaucer's Canterbury tale about the fools Chanticleer and Pertilote occurs on March 32nd. And it even goes back farther than that, all the way to the first Easter, because fake news did not originate in America in 2016. Did you notice that Matthew structures his whole Easter story around the fear of fake news? Jesus was undone, of course, by an unholy conspiracy of church and state, of religion and politics, of temple and empire, of Jerusalem and Rome. And when his ruined remains are thrown into a borrowed grave, the temple, high priest Caiaphas, approaches the empire, Governor Pilate, and says, we remember what that imposter said. After three days, I will rise again. Guard the grave, therefore, so that his friends won't come and steal his body and claim that he raised from the dead. And I love Pilate's response. Matthew has a great sense of humor. Pilate says, okay, take a guard and make it as secure as you can. It's as if Pilate is saying, well, okay, here's a platoon of MPs. You can glue the tomb door shut with mortar and trowel, but if this guy really is who he says he is, my soldiers are not going to be able to keep him dead. And then the biggest April Fool's prank of them all. The earth shakes. A great Vanny Envoy from the great blue beyond descends to the earth like a Chinese space station pries the stone from the mortared hinges and sits down on top of it as if to say, take that, Caiaphas and Pilate. And Matthew tells us drolly, for fear of him, the guards shook 
and became like dead men. Once again, that Matthian sense of humor, this twist of fortune. The guards who are supposed to be very much alive, bristling with swords and helmets and shields and lances, are like dead men, while Jesus, who was supposed to be very, very dead, suddenly shows up among a horde of his best friends and greets them with hail, just like a good wolverine. <laughs> At seminary, a classmate made a friendly wager with me. He said, I bet you a dollar I can sum up the entire New Testament in two words. I said, you're on. He said, Jesus saves. I said, you win. It's the terse precis of the whole sprawling catalog of Christian theology, right? Karl Barth once wrote 13 brick-sized volumes about Christian theology. John Calvin's Bible commentaries are exactly 22,224 pages long. But the whole thing distills to this concentrated essence. Jesus saves. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's on billboards, on bumper stickers, church signs, sometimes in neon. Sometimes you'll see a t-shirt showing Jesus in soccer shorts and shin guards and goalie gloves before the net or in a hockey mask and a goalie stick before the hockey goal. Sometimes he's pressing the save button on his computer. Jesus saves. Anachronism is fun. It's everywhere, but we don't often pause to think about why it's true, right? Why is it precisely Jesus who saves, and what is it that he does that saves us? How does he repair that fractured relationship between humanity and divinity? How does he restore in us the disfigured image of God? Who is he and what does he do? Now, over the centuries, the church has used multiple images and narratives and metaphors to explain exactly how Jesus saves but one of those narratives is the great deception. Easter, of course, was one of the biggest surprises in human history, one of the most stunning reversals of fortune in literature, comatose soldiers, and a living carpenter. It's as if God outwits the principalities and powers of death and hell. He takes them by surprise. Death thought he had won, but God sidesteps him. That's how C.S. Lewis tells the story, right? Did you read the Narnia Chronicles to your children or to your grandchildren? Remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? And when four siblings stumble by accident through the rear of a giant wardrobe into the magical land of Narnia, and Edmund betrays his brother and sisters into the clutches of the white witch for a piece of candy, no less, his life is forfeit, and all of Narnia belongs to the white witch. Because of Edmund's enormous, greedy, shallow, foolish error. Always winter and never Christmas in Narnia. But then Aslan, the great golden lion, convinces the white witch that he should die in Narnia's stead. And the white witch thinks this transaction is to her advantage because Aslan is the king. And with him out of the way, Narnia will belong to her anyway. And so she does him in on a stone table whose symbolism I needn't explain. The next day, however, Aslan's corpse is missing and the stone table is shattered in pieces. And then there he is, romping with the children whose lives he has ransomed. He has outwitted the white witch and he explains it. The white witch, says Aslan, did not know the deeper magic 
from before the dawn of time. If she had been familiar with the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would begin to work backwards. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts that. Death itself begins to work backwards at Easter. That's what happened between Good Friday and Easter so long ago. When Jesus gives up the ghost on Friday afternoon and they throw his mangled corpse into a borrowed grave, death and hell celebrate their greatest victory because this is the most precious plunder and pillage in history because Jesus is the Son of God. But death and hell do not know the deeper magic from before the dawn of time that death cannot hold the Son of God for long. And so God has outwitted death. God has outmaneuvered hell. The great reversal. God is sly as a fox. And this way of talking about how Jesus saves is particularly prominent prominent in the Eastern Orthodox tradition so that in places like Russia and Greece and Ukraine, the priests and the parishioners will gather at church under those golden domes and tell funny stories and play tricks on each other in celebration of the greatest trick of them all. The day after Easter. Now, it doesn't seem always as if God's winning, does it? I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't lost someone precious to them. But when I sense the death that's all around us or fear the darkness that's right above us or notice the meanness and discourtesy that's so often between us or watch the pinched prejudices and narrow enmities that seem to be gaining on us, I look for the Easter people. Look for the helpers, says Mr. Rogers. I look for the Easter people. I look for those who try to see to it that death begins to work backwards. In December, Bev Kirk, one of our beloved members, sent me the most wonderful Christmas letter. I'll bet many of you got it as well. Bev is part of a team of 20 people. 16 of them are from Kenilworth Union Church. 20 people who are helping to get a family from Congo settled here in the United States as new Americans through Refugee One. And if 20 sounds like a huge number for that task, there's a reason for this. The family they're helping is mom and dad and nine kids, ages 2 to 17. Mom and dad fled a vicious war in the Congo in 1999. So for the last 18 years, they've been in a refugee camp in Tanzania. All of these kids were born in this camp in Tanzania. When they arrived here, they didn't even know how to hold a pencil, let alone know how to read and write and add and subtract. And so I'm so proud of this team of sponsors. They're working so hard to turn these Congolese folk into English speakers and Americans, and the amount of love and imagination this crew has poured into this enterprise is just beyond calculation. It's like that MasterCard ad, priceless. So right around Christmas, three of the girls in this family are feeling crummy, stuffy noses and headaches, probably just a cold, but Bev takes them down to the medical clinic, Mount Sinai on Tui Avenue, 
where a physician's assistant named Marina treats the kids. Bev says Marina is small and blonde and pretty and smart. She looks like she grew up in Lake Forest. And Marina turns to Bev and says, are you a doctor? Because Bev, of course, is so wise. She looks like she spent eight years in medical school. But Bev says, no, I'm just a mother and grandmother who is volunteering to get these refugees settled in the United States. And Marina stops what she's doing with a stethoscope and turns to Bev and says, I'm a refugee too. I came here 28 years ago from Russia. And I've spent the entire time between helping refugees. And then Marina, the physician assistant, brightens with pride and tells Bev, many of the refugee mothers name their babies after me. And that makes me proud because many of them are Muslim and I am a Jew. Marina is a perfect name for refugee babies who crossed an ocean to come to America, yes? Because Marina means of the ocean or the seafarer. And when I heard that shapely story of perfect symmetry, it just seemed to me that death sort of cringed, backed off in fear, that death's borders contracted a little bit. It just seemed to me as if death began to work backwards just a little bit. So look for the helpers. Look for the Easter people. Look for those who try to see to it that death begins to work backwards. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.